0: It's a real joy and a privilege uh, to be able to be with you at this great moment of celebration, 10th anniversary, and this moment uh, where we get uh, to pray in elders together. And uh, this morning, what I wanted to start with is to actually just show you a little video which will make sense in due course. So we're just going to watch a little video together. The Academy Award for Best Picture. (laughs) You're (laughs) impossible. Come on. La La Land. La La Land has 14 Oscar nominations this year and is tied for the most nominated movie in Oscar history, winning seven Oscars, production design, cinematography, original score, song, directing, actress, and best picture. thank you, thank you all. Um, thank you to the Academy, thank you to Lionsgate, thank you to our incredible cast and crew, we're all up here right now. Matt Pluff, you kicked this off, and Damien Chazelle, we're standing on your shoulders. We lost by the way, but you know. Guys, guys I'm sorry, <laughs> no. This, there's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won best picture. Moonlight won. This is not a joke. This is not a joke, I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. This is not a joke. Moonlight is one best picture. <laughs> Moonlight. Best picture. Okay. I think you guys should keep it anyway. Oh, it's mine, I'm sorry. Guys. This is a uh, very unfortunate what happened. Personally, I blame Steve Harvey for this. I would like to see you get an Oscar anyway. Why can't we just give out a whole bunch I, I, of them? I'm going to be really proud to hand this to my friends from Moonlight. That's Thanks. nice of you. Getting the big announcement wrong is really a big deal. <laughs> so, that was uh, from a year or so ago at the Academy Awards the biggest announcement of the night, big picture they got wrong they announced la la land as the winner but it was in fact a mistake and there was uh, significant consequences to that messy moment the good folk at price waterhouse coopers who oversaw the process of the academy awards no longer have a job and so what i want to do this morning is for us to look at the really big announcement and make sure that we get the big announcement right. So if you've got your Bibles, if you want to turn to Matthew 28, Matthew 28 and verse 16. Uh, If you're a Christ follower, these are verses that you are very familiar with. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we come to your word, and we come to your grand, big announcement. We pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you'd help us see and understand and really get this announcement correct. And all God's people said, my title for this morning's message is Jesus, the local church leadership and world mission. What we see here is Jesus making the grand and great commission. He makes this commission just prior to his ascension into heaven and he gives The final marching orders, and it's wise and appropriate for us to spend some time thinking about this announcement. So, I just want to ask a couple of questions of this grand announcement, this great commission. Firstly, who was this commission given to? Well, we know it was given to the 11, we know that the 11 received it from verse 16. But I want to contend to you that when Jesus gave this commandment, he just didn't have the 11 in mind, but he had all true followers of Christ. I want to suggest that for two reasons. Firstly, I want you to notice the target of the commission, to make disciples of all nations. Was it possible for these uh, 11 men 2,000 years ago, to circulate to all nations, to every single people group on planet Earth at the time that it was given? And the obvious answer to that is no. It is evident that other people, lots of other people were in view here. The second reason why I want to suggest that this commission wasn't just given to the 11, was because of the duration of the commission. Notice the phrase, to the very end of the age. The 11 were certainly special, but they were not eternal, right? And uh, therefore, the you that we find in verses 20 and 21 refer to people beyond the 11. Jesus is talking about us. The 11 get to start it, but we get to finish it. This great commission, this grand announcement has in view every true follower of Christ, not just simply the 11 who received it. Which leads to the next question, which is what does obedience to this command look like? If Jesus is given a great commission and the great commission involves all true followers of Christ, then all true followers of Christ should be thinking what does obedience to this commandment mean? And I want to contend to you that the best way of answering that question is to understand how the very first hearers obeyed the Great Commission. Because surely the 11 that were personally trained and commissioned by Jesus, the way that they understood and obeyed this commission should be very informative for the rest of us. And I want to suggest to you that the way that the very first hearers sought to obey the Great Commission was by planting churches. The local church was the fruit and the focus of the Great Commission. And the reason why I say that is because we're not left to speculate as to how the very first followers who heard this commission responded. Because actually the book of Acts is a description how the very first people responded to this great and grand commission. And when we open up the book of Acts, which is chapter one of church history, if you like, what we discover is the book of Acts is almost like a catalogue of church planting. As you read, you see that a church is started in Jerusalem and then Antioch and then Corinth and then Philippi and then Ephesus and then Thessalonica. So we see church plant after church plant after church plant. And then when we carry on reading in our New Testament, we see letters that are written back to the churches that were planted to help them grow and mature and be established in their faith faith. Now, why is this important? Well, if you ever wanting to discern how to do something properly and correctly, you always go back to origins, right? <laughs> People that are trying to work out history, if they can get original sources, th- uh, that is pure gold, because you get to understand how the founder really wanted it, what, what it's really like. You know, we uh, we live in a, r- a region here that is famous for making fantastic wine. And if you, if you speak to uh, the best and most well-known estates, the estates that produce wine that literally goes around the world, what they will tell you is that the way that they prepare wine and get it ready has a very long history that is very well documented that prepares them in order to do something excellently. Well, I want to suggest to you that the same process Uh, should inform our hearts and minds? How did the very first people, the, the, the people that were trained and equipped and mentored by Jesus, how did they respond to this? Because that should inform the way that we should respond to it. So I think it's important for that reason. But secondly, what is important is to understand that the very first followers of Christ understood that in order... To obey the Great Commission, it required more than simply conversion. It required a community. Friends, let's go back to this Great Commission that we know so very well. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the very ends of the age. What's the kicker here? Jesus isn't simply saying, go and preach the gospel and win converts. He most certainly is. And when these churches are planted, we see that they are planted through gospel proclamation. We're going to look at that in a little more detail. Local churches are formed through the proclamation of the gospel, people responding to the gospel. But the requirement in the Great Commission isn't simply gospel proclamation. It is also... Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And the very first followers of Jesus realized that in order to obey everything that Jesus had commanded requires a community. A community is essential if we are going to live out what it really means to be a follower of Christ. You simply cannot be a Christ follower in isolation. It is impossible to be a faithful follower of Jesus in private in order to obey everything he has commanded, in order to get the Great Commission right. You require a community, not simply conversion. We can certainly see this as true when we actually study uh, the Scriptures. If you study the New Testament, you'll discover that there are at least... 31 another verses in the Bible. Let me give you... A quick run through. Be at peace with one another. Love one another. Be joined in one another. Be devoted to one another. Honour one another. Rejoice with one another. Weep with one another. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another. Counsel one another. Greet one another. Agree with one another. Wait for one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Carry one another's burdens. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Submit to one another. Bear with one another. Teach each other. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Spur one another on. Offer hospitality to one another. Minister to one another. Be humble towards one another. Confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, fellowship with one another, and you don't need a brain surgeon to know that unless you've got a multiple personality disorder, you are going to struggle to obey a one-another verse by yourself, right? You need another in order to obey a one-another. You need a community. You need a community. You need a community, how how was the Great Commission followed and obeyed by planting local churches? The next question we need to be asking is, well, if a local church is the fruit and the effect of obeying the Great Commission, what does that thing look like? I'm so glad you asked. Let's look at the opening verses of Philippians chapter 1. So just flick over to Philippians chapter 1 and we want to look at the first six verses here just to see... Uh, what a local church is all about. Paul writes the following, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And biblical commentator Alex Matias says this is, this is a, rem, a remarkably full summary of the constitution of a New Testament church. We get this remarkably full description of what a local church looks like. Let's just look at four things that are important. The very first description that we get Uh, of this church is it's to the saints. Now, if you read the book of Philippians, you'll know that this church isn't made up of uh, super-performing, incredible Christians. This isn't like the kind of Kenyan long-distance team, you know, like everybody's phenomenal and, you know, they're going to come one, two, and three in the Olympics. The, the Philippians weren't, weren't, weren't the, the, the kind of the gathering of, of, of the, the, the super incredible Christians. No, no, they, they're just, they're, they're ordinary Christians that have been saved by grace. And when you read the book, you see people are having arguments and Paul's got to help kind of sort that out. But what we get to see here is that the description of what a church is, it is made up of a people saved by grace, which is kind of important. If you've kind of come from a a kind of a Catholic uh, kind of heritage and background, you may think of saints as being an incredibly high bar and certainly within the Catholic uh, tradition, the bar in order to be a saint is incredibly high. You can go Google this when you get home. But in order to be a saint, what needs to happen is you need to have lived a, like an exceptional, uh, phenomenal life, like a Mother Teresa, um, which is hard enough, dare I say, near impossible. Uh, but here is, here's the real challenge. Uh, in order to be a saint within the Catholic Church, you need to have performed... Two verifiable miracles after your death. True story. I'm not making this up. You can go Google it at home. It is an incredibly high bar. Like, I personally think, like, verifiable miracles while you're alive is a high bar. But but multiple verifiable miracles after your death is an incredibly high bar. But, but, but fortunately, the Protestant bar is much lower. The Protestant bar is wait for it, a sinner saved by grace. And I can do that, you know, I, I, I can bring sin, like I need to be saved and like Jesus says I want to save you and then I become a saint, which is like a beautiful thing, isn't it? I respond to the gospel. I receive the righteousness of Christ. And because I've received the righteousness of Christ, I'm a saint, not on the basis of my great performance, but on the basis of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. So the first thing that we see about church is that there are people that are saved by the gospel. What what makes a church a church? A church becomes a church when individual after individual has a personal conversion to Jesus and then they get knitted together. I really wished we had the whole day and we could go around the whole room and ask everybody to tell their story about how they became a Christian. It would be utterly thrilling. It would be amazing. There'd be so many personal details for each person that we'd just go like, wow, wasn't that beautiful? It's like God designed like a personal rescue mission just for that person. And it had so many different fingerprints and people praying. It's incredible. So first thing we see is that there are saints. The next thing that we see is that there's there's, there's recognized leadership. Notice, together with the elders and deacons. With the elders and deacons, there were leaders uh, in this church. It wasn't just the nameless, faceless, Uh, community of people saved without any recognized leadership. No, there was leadership. And then this church was in partnership with others outside of the community. Paul speaks about uh, them being in a gospel partnership. Although actually this was a pretty mature church, this eldership team recognized that they weren't independent and self-contained unit. No, 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 this this leadership had relationship with those outside of the church. Paul ha- talks about this partnership that he's had from the first day until now, and if we carried on reading in Philippians chapter 1, we would get down to verses 9 through 11, where Paul prays for them, and what's clear is that his purpose for this church, the reason for this external partnership was about gospel advance and maturity. It was about mission and maturity. A community saved by grace with recognized leadership, external partnership for the purpose of mission and maturity, for the purpose of great commission, right? Proclaiming the gospel, helping people to obey everything that Christ has instructed. Now, this morning is a special morning because this morning we're going to speak about that recognized leadership component. We're going to speak about elders. In fact, this is going to be a moment where elders get appointed within the life of this church. And I want, to see, I want you to see that this appointment moment isn't divorced from the Great Commission. It is vitally connected. Great Commission... Proclaiming the gospel, teaching people to obey everything Christ has commanded equals local church. Local church, what does a healthy local church look like? One of the aspects of a healthy local church is that it's got recognized leadership. It's got elders, it's got deacons. And this morning is a morning where we look at the issue around eldership. And I want to share six things that I think is important for us to reflect on when it comes to the issue of eldership. The first thing that I want us to notice is that eldership existed in the early church. It is really important that we see that the very first churches that were ever planted had a recognized group of leaders. Paul highlights the fact that there were elders in this local church in Philippi It's interesting that he says together with the elders, so they're not external to the community. Eldership isn't a group of people that aren't a part of the community. They're not external or above the community. They are together with. We're a community together, and from within the community, God entrusts a responsibility uh, towards a certain uh, group in order uh, that they may help focus the community in a Godward direction. It's important to note here that this, this appointment moment isn't uh, an, unf- an unfortunate evil in 2019. That You know, leadership isn't like a 21st century uh, m- mutation. No, the very first churches had leadership in uh, a part of them. Uh, leadership isn't a necessary evil. It's actually a gift from God in order to care for the community. So first eldership existed in the local church. Secondly, eldership was a shared endeavor. Notice that in the Philippian verse that we looked at it it speaks of elders plural and deacons. So leadership in the in the New Testament is a shared endeavor. We see this really throughout the New Testament. If you go to Acts 20 Where uh, Paul is in Miletus and he calls for the Ephesian elders, plural, he calls for this eldership team to come and visit him. And really, throughout the New Testament, we see time and time again the fact that God's intention is that churches be led by a team uh, in many different places. Let me give you a few examples. In Acts 14, verses 21 to 23, we read the following. Paul and Barnabas preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And then it goes on to say, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders, plural, for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they put their trust. Aren't you glad you're alive in 2019? right? You get brutal rolls, you get ice cream. If you're a part of these churches, they're forced in for the appointment of eldership. Can you see how things have changed? Uh, can you see? Can, 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 can you see? I, I think we should collect your tickets personally. <laughs> <laughs> Titus 1 verse 5. Uh, this is Paul writing to Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you may straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. The modus operandi of Paul was to appoint eldership teams, plural, in the different places where church uh, was planted. Or think about James 5, verse 14, in is is any one of you sick? Uh, He should switch on TBN and put his hand on the screen. Oh, no, no, it doesn't say that. It says, he should call the elders of the church, plural, to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. If you're really sick, what are you meant to do? You're meant to call your eldership team and they to anoint you with oil and pray for you. Or think about what the writer to the book of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 13 verse 20. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Friends, without a shadow of a doubt, leadership in the New Testament is a shared endeavor And the way we like to say it at the church that I'm from is that Jubilee Community Church is a church that is led by a team, which happens to have a team leader, not by an individual who has a team. Now that can sound like semantics, but friends, there's a mega difference between a church being led by an individual who happens to have a team than a church that is led by a team that happens to have a team leader. This morning we are appointing elders to join a team that will lead this church. One Hope is led by a team of elders. We're grateful for Paul who gives leadership to that team, but this church is led by a team, not by an individual. Thirdly, I want us to note that elders are appointed by the Holy Spirit. In the Acts 20 account uh, that I referenced earlier, where Paul is in Miletus and he invites the Ephesian elders uh, for an opportunity to speak to them, these would have been individuals that Paul himself had laid his hands on and appointed as elders, but what he says to them in Acts 20 verse 28, he says the following, he says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Friends, it's very interesting to me that when Paul addresses an eldership team that he himself had laid his hands on in order to appoint for eldership, he doesn't say, Who I made elders. He says, Whom the Holy Spirit has made elders. Church governance is not a democracy. So, the appointment today of elders isn 't because we had a voting thing, and you know we had the you know primaries and then it came down to the vote and the, these are the people that won the vote so church governance isn 't a democracy, nor is it an autocracy where you just decreed from above, but rather, it is a theocracy. God appoints elders within the believing community. Elders are appointed by the Holy Spirit it is confirmed by external ministry, and by church members, but it is a work of God. It is a sacred thing. In a few moments' time, we are going to be praying for the appointment of elders. Friends, this isn't a, a moment that is uh, where we're just going through the motions. It's not a traditional kind of moment. It is a sacred moment where we are trusting that the Holy Spirit will anoint new elders in this life of the church in order to care for this church. We are praying that God would deposit something in these new elders that would actually help them serve and care for this church in an effective way, that God would place something inside of them. This moment isn't a ceremonial moment. It is a moment of God who is alive, anointing, and empowering elders for the good of this church and for the advance of his kingdom. The fourth thing that I want you to notice is that elders are primarily called to be an example. It is very important for us to think biblically about leadership. We live in a celebrity driven culture, which means that we assume that people that have positions... Of leadership need to be exceptional because that's how our world works, right? You need to be an exceptional singer in order to win a particular competition. You need to be an exceptional athlete in order to go to the Olympics or to the World Cup. You need to be an exceptional businessman in order... Uh, to have a wider sphere, and we can have that mindset when we come to the church, and we can think that what we really need from our leaders is we need them to be exceptional. We need them to be in a special category of Christianity that inspires us, but something that we can't attain to ourselves. We, 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 we We need our leaders to be so far ahead of us uh, that, they, that they, they, they kind of drag us along. But friends, you will not find that description of leadership when you carefully study the New Testament requirements of eldership. Dr. D.A. Carson, arguably uh, the most famous New Testament scholar on the planet today, says that when you study the requirements for eldership, you will discover that they are remarkable for being unremarkable. They're remarkable for being unremarkable. Don Carson says if you study the requirements of eldership that's found in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5, are remarkable for being unremarkable because what is required of an elder is required of every Christian except for two requirements. The two that aren't required of every Christian is mustn't be a recent uh, convert, and two must be able to teach. All the other requirements are required of all Christians. All Christians are meant to practice hospitality. All Christians are meant to exercise self-control. All Christians aren't meant to be given to drunkenness. So the requirements of an elder are the requirements just of a Christian, and you can think, well, well that's a bit of a head scratcher. No, it's not. It's not a head-scratcher because the essence of Christian leadership is a call to be an example, not a call to be an exception. Christian leaders shouldn't be people that are in such a different stratosphere that you can't relate to them at all. And for the new elders coming in today, I want to say to you, your job spec is just to faithfully follow Jesus. It's to be an example of what it means to be a, a follower of Jesus and not to feel a pressure to feel like you need to super perform in order to impress others. It's a call to be an example. Robert Murray McShane got it spot on when he said, what my people need most from me is my personal holiness. Fifthly, elders' primary responsibilities are to lead, feed, guard, and guide. The prevailing New Testament motif for eldership is shepherding. We see this in Acts uh, 20 verse 28, be shepherds of God's church, which if you do a longitudinal study through the Old Testament and the New, that, that the, the, the primary example that God uses for leaders amongst his community is that they would be shepherds. And the primary responsibility of a shepherd was to lead, was to feed, was to guard and was to guide. So elders are meant to lead. They're meant to provide leadership within the community. They are to feed. They are to teach from God's word. They are to guard. God is not unaware of the reality of wolves, and so he calls elders to guard the community from people that would have sinister motives and then they're called to guide, to provide guidance. Elders care for the direction, nourishment, nurture, and protection of the believing community. And then the final thing that we see is that elders are connected with external partners. Although God has appointed elders in order to govern within the context Of the local community, lead, feed, guard, and guide. He nevertheless calls eldership teams to connect with partners outside of the community to help them on mission and to help the church come to a place of maturity. So, wise eldership teams build relationships with people outside of the community in order to help them, protect them, advance them on mission and help them come to maturity. Friends, eldership done right is a beautiful thing. Uh, It is a great safeguard to the community, but it is a great catalyst for us not getting the big announcement wrong. To get the big announcement right involves being front-footed in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, and calling people to repentance and to faith in Jesus but it also involves teaching us to obey everything that he has commanded, which requires more than conversion. It requires a community, a community that is led in a Godward direction. And this morning, we've got a great privilege of being able to pray for two new couples to join this team, Bates and Jen and Johannes and Ali. And I'm going to hand over to Paul who is just going to speak to us about those two couples before we come to the moment of prayer.